Welcome to St. Louis on the Air. I'm Sarah Fenske. More than 260,000 Missourians filed claims showing they were unemployed as of May 2nd. It's a staggering number, and what makes it worse is that it's likely only to grow. Jeff Mazur is the executive director of the tech training nonprofit Launch Code. He sees those numbers as a wake-up call. He believes our current system of workforce training and development simply hasn't kept pace with the times. And with many more workers dependent on it and the economy facing some huge challenges ahead, he's sounding the alarm. He believes this is something we need to address now. And he's here today to talk to us about it. So, Jeff Mazur, welcome to the show. Thanks so much, Sarah. It's great to be on. And we're also joined today by State Senator Brian Williams. He's a Democrat representing Ferguson and the surrounding areas. Senator Williams, welcome to the show. Hi, Sarah. It's good to be on with you both. And I'm so glad both of you are here today. This is such an important issue, and it's one, frankly, I just don't hear people talking about that much. And, and Jeff, when you and I first started talking about this, you expressed to me how these workforce training programs funded by the federal government just haven't kept up with modern realities. You had a really good example that I had never even thought about. It had to do with going there in person. Tell me about how this works. Yeah, sure. I think, Sarah, it's something that a lot of people don't think about. And I think the challenges that we're facing right now, given COVID and people being forced to stay at home and the 36 million Americans who are unemployed, we're, we, it, it naturally forces us down the road of thinking a little more about workforce development policy and why things are the way they are and what things work well and what things can be improved. And the example that you touch on is one that's been a hobby horse for me for a long time. And that's this idea that we have this workforce uh, funding and policy that's set up. And we have job centers. Most people are familiar with the fact that job centers exist. They're places you might go to uh, file for unemployment or get other job services when you're looking for a new job or, or new skills. And unfortunately, one of the things that has grown up around this system is the necessity in virtually every instance that someone who's seeking these sorts of services uh, has to go seek those things in person by going to a job center and oftentimes taking a number and sitting and waiting for 40 minutes and then going and having a conversation with someone face-to-face for 60 to 90 minutes, which is fine so far as it goes. But when we think about every other aspect of, of searching for a job and getting job skills in 2020, it doesn't really match up. Uh, people are used to going out there and finding what jobs are available. And once they've found a job uh, that they see is available or has a posting up, they'll apply online. And oftentimes people are used to getting skills themselves via online training services. And while all that has happened over the course of the last decade and become very common, we still have public workforce development services that are provided in a way that doesn't really match up with the rest of what we see out there in the job skilling and workforce development space. That does seem just extraordinarily backward. And I imagine there's some people who might be eligible for these programs who realize they have to go down to some city office or county office um, and do this face-to-face. They might decide just not to go at all. Um, Is that a concern? Of course, they're always, when we provide these services, the key thing is trying to get these services and these products to people who actually need them. And the more barriers that are set up in front of people, the more difficult you make it for people to access these services, or in some instances, to even understand what they're eligible for, uh, the, the harder it is to achieve the goal that the policy is set up for. And we think that, um, I think it's important to recognize that Many of these things are things that local workforce development agencies and boards might like to get past, but it's important to remember that there's a federal law and federal funds that provides the sort of regulatory framework for all of this stuff. And it's really hard to change 
federal law. And so you have local agencies who are trying to provide services to people who need them on the ground, but they are beholden in, in almost every instance to the regulatory and statutory framework that's set up by the federal government to dictate this work. And does the federal law require these sort of in-person meetings or it just sort of strongly encourages it and, and pushes people in that direction? Yeah, there's nothing that there's nothing in the federal law that encourages uh, or mandates that um, agencies make these services or uh, digital determination of eligibility, as mm. I like to call it, available to people. And you know, when we think about the changes that have happened by virtue of the pandemic, the things that are going on today, you think about not just the, as you noted, you know, uh, hundreds of thousands of Missourians who have filed for unemployment, or you think about the 36.5 million Americans who have filed for unemployment. All of the all of this points to the idea that uh, the digital experience and digital access, be it work from home or digital business and online business, has become critical in this moment as we as we lock down and as we shelter in place. Um, yet the services that um, we really need people to get access to so that they can um, uh, prepare themselves for the post-COVID era are things that are sort of locked away for them in in-person settings. And, and that, I think, that contrast is just something that I think um, hopefully can help us help get the federal government and get all of us to a place where we're more comfortable with doing a lot of this work in the digital sphere than we have been in the past, where we could sit back in the easy place of saying, well, you know what, as long as there's a job center open that someone can come to, then we've sort of done our duty. We think we really have to think more innovatively and, and be forward thinking about the kind of experience that people have when they seek these services and their accessibility and availability. Senator Williams, I'm, I'm curious to get your perspective on this. I'm sure you have a lot of constituents um, who would benefit from these services and who might have even sought them out. Um, do they feel at this point that they're working for them? Yeah, absolutely. Um, Sarah, thank you for the question. And again, thank you for allowing me to be on the air with you and Jeff. Um, I think there's a couple levels to this that we have to keep in mind. Uh, one, um, from the state level, um, as a state senator, I've been especially focused on figuring out uh, what are workforce policy challenges and what are things we can do from the state level to help the working population rebound from the COVID-19 pandemic. Mm -hmm. And when you think about those layers, uh, as Jeff um, stated earlier, it's extremely important that we focus on access, but also ensuring that we have policies in place that clearly uh, set expectation for agencies, as well as uh, guidelines for those resources to get directly to that affected population. Um, also, we have to keep in mind that this is something that's not going to go away. We will be living with the threat of this virus for a very long time, and there's no quick fix to a long-term challenge. So we're gonna need ongoing solutions to help job creators keep their doors open. Um, clearly, we're gonna have to help our workforce stay afloat with uh, unemployment benefits uh, COVID-19 and, and more access to child care. So I've been working from my space to one, ensure that those resources are available um, throughout the state, but also working close with local and federal government um, leaders and officials to ensure that there's access. Mm -hmm. And that's been a pretty big challenge so far. 
We're talking to State Senator Brian Williams. He's a Democrat representing Ferguson. We're also talking to Jeff Mazur, who is the executive director of Launch Code, uh, the nonprofit organization that seeks to teach people, um, often from underprivileged communities, how to become coders where there are jobs. And Jeff, that leads me right into the next thing I wanted to ask you about, which is um, it's not just that these programs can be hard to access and that they want people to come in in person, but that maybe they're not always funding programs they could fund. I know you have a vested interest in this, but I think you make a really good point on this. Uh, What is the problem with some of the criteria they have for the programs that get these funds? Sure. It's a good question, Sarah. One of the, as as Senator Williams rightfully notes, um, when you when you set up a system to provide millions of dollars to fund workforce training, it's natural that you want to have parameters in place to ensure program quality and to make sure that monies aren't going to programs that don't really work uh, or that don't train people for jobs that are actually available out there. And and in doing so, the you know the federal government and the federal law has to set out some standards that they use. And you know it happens that um, by and large, most programs that are eligible for workforce for public workforce funding are required to to meet a 80% graduation rate minimum. In other words, um, if you run a workforce training program and um, you get public money to help put people through that program and after a year you can't demonstrate that 80% of the people into your program have graduated, then you get kicked off the list and you're not eligible for funding anymore. Mm-hmm. And that, I think, it appears to most people as a, as a very rational approach. Uh, you don't want programs that people can't get through um, eating up a lot of the public workforce dollars, I think. Um, but when you think about the sorts of skills and the sorts of careers that we see, uh, that we know there's going to be a high premium for, that there already was a high premium for, but where that premium will only increase in the post-pandemic era, uh, jobs that require heavy digital skills, jobs like software development or cybersecurity or other high tech skills, uh, you know, oftentimes that because this is, these are very difficult s- skills to learn, mm-hmm. that you may have very strong programs like, like Launch Code believes ours is, um, that don't graduate nearly 80% of the people who enter them. You may have 60 or 65% of the people who enroll in a class graduating because it's very hard and they're very difficult skills to learn on a, on a short accelerated basis. And you know, we think in a system that's innovating and a system that's looking to the future, uh, there should be ways for providers of training programs like that to be able to access these public workforce dollars so more people can gain these opportunities. And, you know, you might point and say, well, hey, if only 60% of people are um, getting through, is this really a program that people want to go into? Well, when we look here in St. Louis for Launch Codes programs and we open a class at Launch Code for 150 seats. We regularly get 1,000 applicants, 1,100 applicants, 1,200 applicants for those 150 seats. So hmm. we know there's demand out there for programs like this, even if they are hard. And I think it's um, it's my duty to try and advocate for and to try and push in a direction of saying, there's a different way to look about look at how we provide public workforce dollars to innovative training programs that are training people for very hard to enter fields. Senator Williams, I'm, I'm curious if you share that concern. Do you think maybe um, there's some of these criteria that should change um, so that these federal dollars could go to programs that are maybe a bit more difficult to get through but have more in-demand jobs at the end? Oh, absolutely, Sarah. Um, this is a conversation that Jeff and I have had before. And um, one thing that I want to make clear to listeners and and um, clearly folks that I represent and, and folks throughout the state of Missouri is, you know, we've had some things in place which I think are good starts. For example, the Paycheck Protection Program, 
which would help small businesses and nonprofits stay open, was a good step. Yeah. But it's already out of money. So um, depending on what the United States Senate does with the uh, recently passed HEROES Act, which was passed by the Congress yesterday, Mm -hmm. it would determine whether or not they extend that program, but also ensure that that money and funding is going to true small businesses that are on the ground and really have been impacted by this virus. Uh, Secondly, uh, there was a $1,200 check that was sent out um, as well, which is also a, a good first step. But in the St. Louis area, that'll barely cover a month or two months rent, mm-hmm. including groceries and utilities. So by meeting people's basic needs, we can create opportunity for them to reskill for stronger careers moving forward. But we have to keep in mind, Sarah, that organizations like LaunchCode uh, has a big role to play in this effort. And we have to make sure that people aren't forced to sit on the sidelines because of financial insecurity. Mm-hmm. That makes sense to me. And I feel like a lot of us kind of have our, our heads in the sand where we've thought, oh, hey, when this all ends, we can just go back to normal and we'll be back to having super high employment again and people don't need to, to join new fields. And yet some of the best research coming out about this suggests that things could really change here. Jeff, what kind of impact could this all have um, in a big picture way, not just in these couple months ahead where we're looking at, at unemployment? Well, you ask exactly the right question, which is what is the world going to look like whenever this, whatever this means, comes to an end? And I think if we look back to, you know, before the pandemic, when the economy was ostensibly very strong, um, you look back to last fall and the uh, Federal Reserve was talking about the fact that um, 40 plus percent of American workers aged 18 to 64 are what they call low wage workers, people who aren't earning very much money. So even when the economy was very strong, Um, Many people who were working were in low wage jobs. And then um, we see the pandemic hit and, you know, 40 percent of people who are in a household earning forty thousand dollars a year or less have lost a job um, since the pandemic hit. So uh, this huge economic impact. And what that tells us is that um, even when the economy was strong, we had a preponderance of people working in what are actually low wage, low skill jobs that um, are subject, highly subject to volatility in the economy. We saw Mm -hmm. all these people wiped out um, when they're working in those jobs as the pandemic hit. And what we think is our responsibility to figure out ways to help move people, uh, give them accessible ways, affordable ways, free ways to gain skills that allow them to move into career paths that aren't so volatile as those low wage jobs uh, proved to be in the pre-pandemic era. So, you know, the world is going to be very different in lots of ways. We know there'll be a premium on digital skills. We were already heading in that direction. It's only going to be more pronounced. The ability for people to work from home and have the digital skills to do that, the ability for people to run their business in a much more heavily online way is going to be critical. And if we're pushing in the direction of giving people skills that allow them to do those things, we're going to be winning. If we simply try and go back to the way things were before, uh, we're really setting ourselves up for additional heartache. Now, I, I recently read this study uh, by McKinsey, and they were saying in 2017 that as much as 14% of the global workforce would have to switch occupations or acquire new skills in the next 15 or so years because of increased automation, artificial intelligence. It feels like with things like the coronavirus out there, the idea of having a robot worker as opposed to somebody who could get sick becomes a lot more appealing for some of these employers. Senator Williams, does that worry you when it comes comes to your constituents and and the jobs that might be available when the smoke clears on all this. 
Oh, 100% is something that I think about all the time, Sarah. Mm -hmm. um, I grew up and I competed regionally and nationally in robotics. So I've always had an appreciation for technology and understood that it would serve as the keystone to our, our e economy at some point. Um, as we pay attention to what countries are doing throughout the world, um, China, for example, they are, have already moved in the direction of automation. Mm -hmm. And um, clearly that was a trend that was moving uh, towards our country, uh, clearly at a far slower pace uh, than it will be um, after this pandemic, but it's gonna force uh, businesses to recalibrate. Uh, it's gonna force um, various industries to move in uh, directions that may um, create um, more space for robots and, and less human um, interaction and work. And that's something that we have to prepare for in the state of Missouri. So um, there have been a couple things that um, we've been focusing on in the Missouri Senate is uh, one, um, I serve on the Appropriations Committee, mm -hmm. uh, which appropriates funding throughout the entire state of Missouri. And um, the fiscal year 21 budget, um, we included in the budget a small business grant program, which would go uh, before the governor to help employers impacted by COVID-19 pandemic, which uh, we're hopeful that the Missouri Department of Economic Development gets that up and running as soon as possible. Uh, which would provide funding that could go to organizations and, and uh, non-for-profits like Launch Code to have the resources to train and reskill uh, Missourians in the state. But then also the Missouri Department of Labor can also help avoid layoffs while still doing a shared work program, which uh, this was established by Governor Nixon in 2014. But the shared work program allows an employer to divide the available work among a specified group of affected employees instead of laying them off. So instead of cutting half the staff, they can keep everyone but cut half their hours. And then these employees will receive a portion of their unemployment benefits while working reduced hours. But we can also move in the direction of looking at opportunities to provide them training mm -hmm. to where they can get a, a skill that would transcend into um, what our environment's gonna look like after the pandemic without running into the shortcomings of financial insecurity. Mm -hmm. No, those all sound like good steps. And and yet I kind of worry about the underlying system. You know, we talk a lot about the digital divide that's hurting kids um, as they're trying to do virtual learning rather than go to the public schools. What about adult workers who don't have high-speed internet at home? Are, are we worried that they're just going to be left hopelessly behind um, in this new world? Jeff, any thoughts on that? We know that access is critical and it's hard to imagine, particularly in the post-COVID era, gaining access to all of the skills and everything you need in order to advance without having uh, uh, network access and high-speed broadband connectivity. And we know that it's like so many things, availability and access of those tools breaks along um, socioeconomic lines, along racial lines, uh, along geographic lines in a way that, that ensures that people don't actually have equal access. So it is a problem. When when uh, we had a discussion via Zoom a few weeks back that included Senator Williams, this was a topic of much discussion, the things that the state has done already to try and expand broadband access. But I think consistently thinking about ways that we can provide this sort of skilling and access to careers in ways that is cognizant of the various access challenges that people has 
have and the and, and culturally competent in a way that speaks to people's experiences across a broad range of different experiences and backgrounds those things are really critical if we can think about how to gain how to give people skills how to give people access to careers in ways that are cognizant of those individual challenges that people face based on their background we're much more likely to be successful than if we just sort of put those things to the side and try and treat everyone exactly the same well there is so much to chew on here and it makes me feel a little better knowing that you guys are thinking um, so seriously and then so um, you know uh, earnestly about these big issues and I hope that this will just be the beginning of this conversation and that moving forward we can all find a way to start getting some of these reforms in place so uh, Jeff Mazur executive director of launch code I want to thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Sarah. It's been great. And State Senator Brian Williams, um, thank you so much for being here. Sarah, thank you so much for having me on. It's been a great conversation. And we will hope to follow up on all of this as this all continues. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU. Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association, providing more than 41,000 jobs in the production of wood pallets, railroad ties, white oak barrels, hardwood floors, and more. Details at ChooseWood.com.